This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with graphic designer slash rock star John Flansburg about growing up in a modernist house, about designing posters and album covers for his band, They Might Be Giants, and about the band's eclectic originality. If you're confident that what you're doing is actually 51% original, you can actually get bolder about what the other 49% is. Here's Debbie Millman. My guest today might be one giant. John Flansburg is half of the indie rock duo They Might Be Giants. He and his friend John Linnell have had a 30-year career making wonderfully quirky pop songs about science, history, geography, and, of course, thwarted love. Along the way, they've picked up a few Grammys, a bit of platinum, and some extraordinarily devoted fans. Flansburg is more the outgoing half of the duo, and he's also the one with an arts degree from Pratt. If you own a They Might Be Giants album, chances are Flansburg pasted up the cover art himself. He's also directed music videos for Ben Folds 5, Soul Coughing, Harvey Danger, and Frank Black. And, like a true artist, he doesn't mind being called quirky, but he suggests we might try some different words like intense, original, and even strange. John Flansburg, welcome to Design Matters. It's great to be here. So I understand that you got your fashion sense from your dad. <laughs> I, uh, uh, limited fashion sense. <laughs> I'm, or I'm really my fashion sensibility, which is to say, you know, just kind of keep it simple. My dad was a uh, modernist architect with a capital M, and uh, he worked with Walter Gropius in the early 50s. So he was really part of, you know, he was kind of a true believer in uh, modernism. And uh, so I think being the son of a modernist architect, it doesn't make you postmodern, but it makes you something, <laughs> you know? I mean, you have a different kind of perspective on it. Than, so when you say capital M, what do you mean? Well, I mean, modernism as a movement, as okay. a, you know, like as a, uh, as a, as a way to be. And, uh, you know, we grew up in, I grew up in a very unusual house that in certain parts of it, you can actually see all the way through it. And, the, you know, when you're a kid, you just think everything's normal. But, you know, it was, people would come over and it was very obvious that it was not So they'd normal. marvel with a capital A. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was very different. How much do you think that was an influence on the work that you do? I think it was a really profound influence. I mean, not just from a sort of a, a cultural sense, but also being an architect as a profession, you get you really learn how to uh, sort of split up your public sense and your and your personal aesthetic. Like you know, he would go to school committee meetings and be kind of a populist, problem-solving, practical, responsible person. And then as soon as he would get back to his office, he would be the same dreamer, philosopher, capital M modernist that he was. You know, you kind of, he was a bit of a culture smuggler in a way. In what way? What do you mean by culture smuggler? Well, I mean, you know, people were not clamoring for austere architecture, but, but he knew what was right for them. So I understand that you were buying records with your birthday money when you were five yep. years old. Yeah. My grandmother gave me a, a $5 bill, which was actually probably like giving a kid a $50, $50 bill. bill. Yeah, my totally. Was, yeah, she was very generous. And uh, I bought A Hard Day's Night, which is a, 
interesting object lesson in good versus bad music. Cause half so that was your first yeah. album. Yep. Nicely done. One yeah. was, I think, Olivia Newton-John. Well, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then Elton John. <laughs> so you met John Linnell during high school. I actually met him in grammar school, but he's a year older than me. So in that oh. grammar school way, we weren't really friends because you're only friends with people that are in your grade. So, yeah. So you became friends in high school. Yeah, that was when it was like okay to, you know, we actually hung out in the same clique. And we both worked for the school newspaper. The Promethean. Yes. And, and now I understand it was universally loathed. Well, you know, in, like all high school students, um, everything is sort of cliques and, and factions. And the, and the newspaper group was actually its own clique. We had some friends in the drama department. We had some friends who were called freaks who were basically like the drug kids and so the people the, that like your music the kids in the smoking hall yeah, yeah. the heads and were uh, you a head no i worked in the so i worked were in nerd. the newspaper right right or yeah. you, were you a brain i was not no i was a very very bad student okay i mean i was an incredibly bad student and as was john linnell i mean we were both what's interesting i think for both of us is that uh for people who got c's and d's to be so celebrated for you know what we've brought to Music, and, yeah, and, you know, yes. just our, to have to have this sort of intellectual stuff so emphasized is just very strange because you know neither of us were particularly strong in academics. And at that time, you were doing a lot of photography for the school. I did newspaper. a lot of I did a lot of visual everything. I was really from a very early age. I was like into typography and I was into visual stuff. And I remember like looking at uh, books. And becoming very aware that where a patch was in the text. Really? Even, yeah. I mean, just as I was learning to read, my sense of the texture of text was very, very strong. And, um, and the mechanics of mechanical reproduction of stuff. Well, I understand that you were the photo editor yes, of your, of your school editor, newspaper yes. and that you had to go to football games and, and take pictures of football players. Yes. Yes, I did. I did that. And, and, I, and I rewrote articles about football games that I didn't attend because they were because so badly written by the person who wrote them. <laughs> so then you taught yourself to play guitar. Yes. I, and so um, was it all around the same time? Well, there was sort of, it was a, you know, I was, I was born in 1960 and I was 17 in 1977, which is the summer of hate. It was basically when punk rock was invented. And I went to England. I kind of uh, bluffed my way into a summer abroad program that was previously the domain of just uh, the French speaking girls of the high school and had a summer in, in England and in Wales and saw a bunch of punk rock bands. I actually saw Elvis Costello's very first public performance in London. And that was a real life changer, actually. You know, I think up until then, I felt like being in a rock band was sort of... Um, there was like this, uh, a presumption of like, uh, being a superhero. It was, like, it was kind of beyond mere mortals to be in a rock band. But um, yeah, I just kind of got, got a guitar. And I, my first semester of college was at George Washington University. And I was working in the parking lot there nights in a little booth, and I, I learned how to play the guitar. How and, many cars were stolen during that tenure? Um, a number of cars were stolen. <laughs> um, and uh, and uh, one, I, one, I found out later that uh, one night someone was actually uh, stabbed behind the lot. <laughs> well, you were teaching well, yourself I don't know to play when it, We don't know exactly when it happened because the body was not found. Although I, I think if I remember the story correctly, the body might have been dragged to behind the lot. <laughs> But, you know, it was downtown D.C. in the 70s. It was actually a pretty, uh, it was a pretty crummy neighborhood. 
And when you were teaching yourself to play guitar, is it is it also true that you were only teaching yourself to play with the first three strings? Yes, yes. I learned. I a friend of mine, Brad Smith, who had a Beatles uh, tribute band in uh, my hometown, gave me his sort of cast off guitar, and I I, uh, I couldn't wrap my hand around the whole thing. Oh, see, so, urban myth has it that you only learned how to play with the first three strings because that was the way that the Ramones played. Oh no, no! I, not, I don't think that. I don't think that is. I think they 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 grabbed all six at the same time. They were they were up for it. Um, no, I had a tape recorder before I had a guitar. And getting back to sort of that the idea of mechanical reproduction, I was really interested in tape recording as much as I was playing the guitar. You know, you always hear the same people say the same thing about, oh, you know, I wanted to meet girls, but blah blah blah. Like I I really just wanted to make original recordings on a tape recorder, and the guitar was a vehicle for that. So you, you mentioned going to George Washington University, also yes. went to Antioch College and Pratt. Yep. Now at Pratt, you earned a BFA in printmaking. Yep. I have two questions. Three colleges to get a degree in printmaking? It was a BFA. <laughs> I'm very proud of my Pratt BFA. <laughs> uh, well, you know, we're at the School of Visual Arts, and this is a live show in front of my yes. existing yes. students. Um, so what are you trying to say? What's nothing, wrong with nothing, BFAs? Absolutely nothing. Printmaking? Why printmaking? Uh, well, it was, it was a very politicized thing. I probably would have been a painting major. I transferred in on a communications uh, portfolio, which I guess I hear now is something you can't do. And didn't you bluff your way in somehow? Well, I had done lots of pay stuff. I had done tons of graphic design. I had a very... You know, for somebody who was 20 years old, I had a very real-looking portfolio. I had logos and all sorts of, you know, corporate identity things and all sorts of things that looked very real. So you were working as a designer before you even got a degree in design yeah, or in yeah, printmaking? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I'd worked at my dad's office within his – he had a graphic department in his office, and I had worked in all the college papers and magazines. And, and so this so. was really what you thought that – the path of your career was going to be somehow graphic design or oh, some yeah, creative Oh, yeah. I business. was really, I mean, I was obsessed with it before I even knew what it was. So it was very easy to just do it, you know. And plus you did it very old school. I mean, now looking back on it, you well, had it was that, all probably that last, last generation of designers that didn't yes. work on a computer. I have spent days of my life doing set. So for all you designers out there, old enough, as ossified as myself, who knows what that is, you know, just rubbing off those little plastic letters and making them line up. You can get yes. some really good set on eBay now, by the oh, way. Oh, really? Awesome. But it's probably awesome. so old and crunchy. It's, and it smells kind of moldy. I, yeah, I, yeah. I don't know if it, it really yeah. works. It's sort of like, I got this great old roll of scotch tape. <laughs> you know, I don't know <laughs> right. if it lasts. And wax. You work right. with wax. I'm sure you could get a really top quality uh, newspaper waxer for next to nothing. <laughs> right. You know what I would love to have is a stat machine. Oh, yeah. Because stat machines are these incredible contraptions that can do stuff with photographs that you really can't. I mean, as sophisticated as Photoshop is, I feel like there's a whole set of visual effects that kind of went out the window when the stat machine went away. Well, also because so much of it happened by accident with exposure that you couldn't really plan. But you could also, like, work with it and, you know, reproduce those crazy results. So you knew John Linnell in high school and in elementary school. Mm -hmm. You then went your separate ways to go to college. Uh, he went to be – he was in a band in Providence, Rhode Island. This is like really like the new wave moment. So he he went to UMass for six months. And, and then he um, quit. And then he quit and he, he got with this band. And uh, I went off to 
my grand tour of colleges. And then we both reconvened in New York. We had friends in New York uh, who were all occupying this very crummy building in Park Slope. Like when you say, oh, all my friends live in a building in Park Slope, it sounds like, oh, we were all going to Dalton together or something. It sounds like very, very nice. <laughs> very metropolitan. Yes. But um, in fact, uh, you know, this is, this is really post uh, kind of the Fort Apache moment in New York City. And I think it's, as somebody who like, moved to New York in 1980, I'm still shocked at how nice New York has become. It was really at the nadir of uh, its quality of life. And there's just a tremendous number of trash cans on fire and things, abandoned buildings. We lived in a building on 3rd Street between 4th and 5th Avenue in Park Slope, which is now a beautiful, beautiful place across from that little park. And um, I think fully a third of the buildings on that block at that point were abandoned, you know, completely freshly abandoned, like just boarded up. But it was a very sort of treacherous feeling place. Like you were, you really felt like, where is everybody? But I was 21 and it seemed actually kind of fantastic. And I did so, not mind the burning trash cans. But so it wasn't serendipitous that you both ended up in this house at the same time. No, he came, John came to, with his band that was, they were looking to make it big. I mean, they, they had everything kind of seemed like lined up to be a very popular act. They had been a big college act in Providence. They were like a brown band. They were called the Mundanes. And then in 1982, so a year after you reconvene in Brooklyn, you actually yes. start, they might be giants. Yes, and uh, we were doing a lot of, we were sort of playing on each other's tapes. I had, a, I had a, this four-track tape recorder, and um, John had a Moog synthesizer, and we would both just kind of do like home recording, do-it-yourself kind of home recording stuff. So who, who made the first overture to, like who said, hey, you want to start a band? I think we were doing so much stuff in the apartment building. A friend of ours... Um, was working for this organization called Liberation News Service, which was kind of like a lefty version of the AP wire service. Okay. And um, there was a Sandinista rally, and they needed a band, and they didn't have any money to pay them. So we were invited. To, our first show was together was at a Sandinista rally in front of, you know, 100 Sandinistas. I can imagine. The instrumentals worked really well. <laughs> I'm sure they <laughs> <Yeah>. did. <laughs> but I, I think... Making an overture to somebody to start a band, it's almost like saying, I love you for the first time, or will you marry me? Because the other person might not actually say, okay, or I love you too, or well, oh, yeah, I want to start this band with you. You know, these things are not like necessarily like, you don't declare these things in public, but um, we started the band kind of as a way to get away from the seriousness with which John's real band was you know he was in a band that that was trying to get signed by a record company and i think that's sort of a can be kind of a dreary enterprise when you're ambitious and maybe not getting it as far as you want as fast as you want and um you know he was he was also the sideman in that band so um i think his frustrations with that part of it it was fun to be in a band that to just for fun and, so he, and, this was an alternative to the yeah, alternative band. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, I think it affected us from the very beginning. Like, we just, the most, most important thing is that it had to be interesting to us. The first part of it was not about getting over or finding an audience. But that kind of cast a long shadow over They Might Be Giants as an organization. I remember even when we first started touring, it was a little bit scary because all of a sudden the band actually had to pay our rent, which up until then, you know, we, we were working day jobs 
well past making our first album. Well, you worked as a graphic designer through Flood. Yes. Yeah. Your third album. Yeah, yeah. And I had a kick-ass job, too. I mean, I loved, I loved you my... You were bringing a Condé I loved my high You were, like, hanging design. with Anna Wintour in yeah, the elevator, right? Yeah, I was. So tell us about that. What was that like? She smells very nice. Did she? What did she smell like? Oh, like like very nice perfume. <laughs> and did she have good shoes? Uh, she wore gloves, which was... Uh, even, I mean, at that late date in the Condé Nast building, there were women who wore gloves in the elevator. I mean, they would take off their gloves in the elevator. But she wasn't the It was like being in Mad Men, only it was the 80s. Was she at Vogue already, or was she at House and Garden, which she I turned think into she HG, was at, I think she, right? Judging from the way she commanded the elevator, I would say she was already at Vogue. And were you, were you allowed to look at her? I think she was very disappointed that I was in the elevator when she got on. <laughs> and so it was palpable. I'm yeah. sure she didn't say anything. And this anything, was really but... early days. I mean, it must have been like year one for her, yeah. I would think. I, but wow. I, yeah, she, she brought a lot of style to So how long did it take you to come up with the name They Might Be Giants? Uh, we had a long list of names. Uh, one of them was uh, Dump Truck, which that was like the other. I, I remember actually I put together, I was at Pratt when we started the band and I was doing these monotypes, which are like sort of like paintings. One color. Um, yeah. And um, I actually did a couple of monotypes for both incarnations of the band. So we could have been called Dump Truck or we could have been called They Might Be Giants. And I made posters for each in case we went with one or the other. And it was also sort of like a way to see how it would look on a, on a poster. And then shortly afterwards, there was a, a band out of Boston called Dump Truck. So I'm kind of glad that we didn't go with the dump truck thing. But uh, a friend of ours had a list of names for he, – he, he had a ventriloquism act. He had a lot of very, very left-of-center ideas about his ventriloquism act. And one of them was <laughs> that it would have a name like a band. And They Might Be Giants was actually on his list of names. So we just stole – we stole our name. Now, was it a nod to From the, a ventriloquist. From, it sounds very desperately <laughs> seeking Susan somehow. There was a lot of desperation in our, in our lives back then. So when we first corresponded, when I first invited you to be on the show, you wrote me an email that stated that you toiled in graphic design as a layout artist for your entire youth interned at your dad's office in the graphics department. You worked at high school and college newspapers, learned how to spec type. That's a good talent to have, wax copy, make stats, and how to explain what a font was to regular people. So my big question is, how do you explain what a font is to regular people? <laughs> well, but you know, what's interesting is that everybody knows what fonts are now. Um, uh, I feel like uh, if, if people in the CIA were, wanted to look for a good occupational cover, up until uh, the Apple computer, saying you're a graphic designer would have been a perfect choice because you would just see people's eyes roll into the back of their heads when you try to explain, you know, there's different styles of type and you have to make those decisions. And then, you know, everything's actually on a grid, but you don't want to see the grid. I mean, all the things of graphic design that we all think of as just what it's about were really a mystery to people. I mean, I remember trying to explain to somebody the difference between serif and sans serif type. Like, you know, the little bumpy parts on the thing? And it was just like, I know. That's <laughs> what Paula Cher calls the feet on letters. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, so you've functioned as the de facto art director for They Might Be Giants since the first fly poster. Yes, yes, pretty much. And, and it's been a fantastic uh, job, I have to say, because... Uh, we have an office of one. And, and that's uh, you. That's me. And, uh, but you've worked with some great people. I, well, that's what I mean. I I, it's, on... it's, it's, really, it's really been fantastic. It's just been delightful uh, being able to – I have made many, many cold calls 
from calling Rodney Allen Greenblatt to do our very first album cover. Um, you know, I didn't, we did not have a friend in common, even though we were in the same East Village scene. But it was literally just I've, a friend of mine got his phone number and I called him up and said, I know you don't know me from Adam, but how would you like to do an album cover for nothing? We ha- our budget is zero dollars. Wouldn't that be exciting for you? And he was like, well, yeah, yeah you know. <laughs> I've heard about you guys. That sounds like an interesting opportunity. I've never done an album cover, really, so I would, I'll do it. And, you know, it's not that different to this day. I mean, you're asking me how I knew Paul Stare, and uh, that was just a cold call. And I called him up and said, I have a small amount of money. Would you be interested in doing our album covers? So it hasn't really changed that much. But I get to realize the dream of working with people that I admire without having to know them. One of the wonderful experiences that I had in preparing for the show was going through some of my old albums Mm -hmm. and looking at liner notes. And it was an extraordinary experience to sort of go through that world again. And I had to go through, um, I still have many of my old albums Mm -hmm. from the old days, olden days. The actual vinyl. (laughs) Yes. And uh, so going through to look for the early They Might Be Giants albums, as, as I mentioned before, when we were sitting in the studio that I saw you in 1987 at the Village Gate. That's remarkable performing your big single at the time, which was Don't Let's Start. But going through those albums and the liner notes really made me a little bit nostalgic for the days when you could go through albums and liner notes and feel like somehow you were discovering more about the band and more about the people who you admired so much and who were influencing your life, you know, in such profound ways, because well, you even, do. Yeah, even the way you organize that kind of information kind of would help inform but also sort of help the add to the mystery of what you were doing there's a lot of ways you could sort of leave clues about what you were doing that would actually pull people closer yeah it was a different i mean i i I feel like a third of my mind is just occupied with liner note information speaking of graphic designers and album covers i've been thinking of the if anyone ever is in a used record store and you see the band's music from big pink I'm pretty sure it was laid out by Milton Glaser. Really? I'm not sure that there's a credit, but there is, speaking of uh, patches, it is such a strange document of corrections and confusion. I'm sure he would be very unhappy with the result. But uh, Why? Why is well, it's, that? Well, it's, it's, it's stylish, but there's also like a, it's a very eccentric uh, piece of layout. So was, were there changes made? I think there were lots and him? lots of changes. <laughs> Probably after he left, left okay. the room. Okay. Um, well, here's another hint for listeners. If you go to eBay and you get the Bob Dylan Greatest Hits Volume 1 album, the original version, you can find the Milton Glaser Dylan poster in there. Oh, yeah. Turns any dorm room into a showplace. So I read that Karen Brown, who is John Linnell's wife, yep. said that of the two of you, that Linnell is more of the Elton John and you're more of the Madonna in the relationship. Wow, I would. I don't even know what that means. I don't either, and I wanted to ask you about it because sounds like there's some a couple of big divas in that band. Well, I <laughs> I can understand you being more the Madonna aspect because you're the more outgoing, the more sort of savvy out there talking to the media guy. But John Linnell is Elton John. 
I don't know. Maybe Bernie Taupin, but not I'm not Elton even sure. John. I'm not even sure that John likes Elton John that much, so he might not take that that well. But um, no, you know, we have a very real collaboration, and I think you know one of the things you realize when you're in a duo is that the way everything's set up is to m- almost turn you into kind of like a mutton Jeff type thing where like you're, or you're like, you're, you're opposites and everything's about saying that you're opposites. The truth is like John is happy to have us collectively control all our output and being, you know, if you are a, a control enthusiast, hmm. um, being in a rock band is a fantastic thing to be because a million battles have been won before you even enter the picture, you know, 20 years ago, somebody was standing on a desk screaming like, I, this will not stand. And everybody remembers that moment and they respect the artist in this way that doesn't work in the, you know, when you, certainly when you're working as a graphic designer. But, you know, making, I've made rock videos and I've made jingles. I've worked in advertising. And those places, you know, you're working, you're working with clients. It's about cooperation. It's about trying to figure out a way to get your idea through a process one of the great things about being in a rock band is that you can actually have some very, very indefensible ideas and there's no one there to stop you. I mean, our biggest issue has always been budgets. There Might Be Giants has not been that commercially successful, so we've never been able to do fancy things, which so would have been nice. What do you attribute your 30-year partnership to? Oh, I mean, we get along. I mean, we, have the, there, we are in heated agreement about a lot of things. And um, even though... I've taken the lead on the graphic design stuff. You know, in some ultimate way, I feel like John's my client. Like, I want, you know, I want him to love the thing that I cooked up and surprise him with some way to visualize the band that works and reflects us in a good way. How tough a client is he? Oh, no, he's he's an easygoing guy. But uh, does he fight with you about that or not fight with you, disagree or push well, back? Well, I mean, or... I think, you know, the, the tenets of the band were like very established very early on that we wanted it to be kind of open ended. You know, I think one of the things that's, you know, rock music, there's a lot of really powerful graphic design in rock music. But a lot of times the designers are kind of summing up what the band is about. And, and I mean, I'll give you an, like uh, just stray examples would be like. You know, Sgt. Pepper's, the cover of Sgt. Pepper's is completely iconic for its style, but also the actual illustration of it shows you're at a funeral for the old Beatles, and it's very mod, and it's, okay, they're entering this new creative period. That really defines how every, you know, you pick up that album, you don't need to hear a note, and you know, okay, the Beatles have changed. Or, you know, London Calling, which is just the bass player smashing his bass on, the, on a stage live. You know this band is raw and they're going to hurt you somehow those albums telegraph a lot of information album covers telegraph a lot of information for us i think we've always wanted they might be giants to be open-ended we want people to hear each song as its own universe like we want it to be kaleidoscopic so instead of trying to sum up the spirit of the band we're trying to keep um some element of mystery going so there's always a little bit like kind of left to interpret so how do you do that? How do you how do you know what is mysterious and what is simply leaving stuff out? Well, sometimes, you know, sometimes uh you know, there's style things like uh when we were I was doing the Flood album cover, I had done all this research in uh the Time Library, the Time Life 
photo archives. And uh, I found the image that would be on the cover, and it's a beautiful, strange, strange photograph of these guys who are basically in homemade canoes getting out of a flood. I mean, they've literally been flooded in, out, and uh, they're just in these things made out of boards. And it's a really enigmatic photograph, and it's very beautiful. And I really wanted to just have it be a photograph, which, of course, is like a commercial suicide because your name isn't on the cover. And, but at that moment, I was feeling very brave. And um, a friend of mine, Elizabeth Van Italy, who's a graphic designer, sort of explained to me, you know, that's sort of a cop-out. Like, isn't there a way to, do, to have it be more beautiful and still as interesting and do something with text? And so we kind of created the... The, well, the, the it was like a almost. yeah it's yeah. like a union uh, seal and that has typography built into it and a friend of mine who was a really really great uh, you know could do pen and ink stuff very precisely on vellum just created that it's so interesting because that particular photograph mm-hmm. is so quirky and so unusual that I was actually convinced that you commissioned that photograph to be done specifically for the band. No, no. Um, the actual photograph is uh, by Margaret Bork-White, who was a, really a legendary life photographer. And on the same roll of film is probably one of the most important photographs of her career, which is um, the photograph of people in a bread line in front of a billboard that says America's High Standard of Living. And it's now an image that's synonymous with the Great Depression, but in fact, they were flood relief people in a, in a breadline for flood relief. There was just a an event that happened, I think, in 1930 so or 31. So these sort of makeshift garbage pails slash boats. That was our photograph, right. but that was never it had never been printed. That photograph was literally in the Time Life Archive as a uh, contact sheet. But when I saw it for the first time, it was on a loop, and it was you know two inches. Good choice. Yeah. Well, it's, it's that was an amazing. Um, have you, uh, have you seen that show Hoarders? Yes. The basement of the Time Life building was basically just like the most beautiful artistic version of Hoarders that you've ever... Nothing was organized. Everything there was... It looked like somebody had, you know, just poured a dumpster of amazing photographs into a basement. So I want to talk to you a little bit about... So you did this interview 10 years ago with Terry Gross on Fresh Air, and you were talking about how They Might Be Giants were not a sex band. And you you described how a big part of the music business is pushing very pretty people in front of very large crowds. Right. Well, I mean, that that might have, you know, things have changed since then. So much, even more. Yeah. I mean, I was talking to somebody the other day about how, how many gatekeepers there were when we were coming up and how wonderful that all the roles of gatekeepers have kind of gone away. I'm, I mean, I'm not so sure it's so bad that rock critics don't really have much say anymore. I think interesting acts got put forward in the world because of rock critics' advocacy. For example, just one or two? Oh, I mean, I don't know. I was thinking of like, you know, the Pixies mm. are a great band. And, I, and if it wasn't for rock critics saying like, you've got to check out this band, they, they were, I would not say that they were like a natural but I remember we did a show once right around New Year's Eve at T.T. the Bears in Boston. And we sold this place out. And, of course, like the They Might Be Giants crowd is not a drinking crowd. But New Year's is a drinking time. And I think, you know, the drink revenues were probably a third of what the club owner thought they should be. And he just made it very clear that we were not invited back. Because even though we had sold a lot of tickets, we had not sold any booze. And 
that kind of idea, that idea, you know, just something as simple as that. Like, it didn't matter if we did a good show or a bad show. didn't matter if we sold a lot of tickets or not. Like, if you're not going to sell booze, you're not going to get to play at the club again. That was kind of part of the music scene back then. Everything was slightly more mainstreamed. Now it's kind of more phenomenon-based. Well, I think now it's really about selling out large stadiums because how else are bands going to be able to make money? Well, I don't know. I mean, it's never... If you want to make money, you should do anything else. Get into graphic design. Oh, yeah. That's a, that's a real big one. So there was also, because of your 20-year anniversary, quite a lot of press around you being together for 20 years. And in The New Yorker, there was a really interesting article. There was a paragraph so beautiful describing what you do and what you don't do that I wanted to read it to you and then ask for your sort of feeling about it. So um, this is from The New Yorker in 2002. If a nerd is someone whose every word and deed are predicted on the belief that appearing smart is more important than getting laid, then they might be giants are in fact nerds. Their music doesn't sell sex. It sells smart kid whimsy, arty, melodic, and well-wrought in a formal way, it bristles with wordplay and musical ideas. Its references are not to such totems of cool as the Velvet Underground and Leonard Cohen, but to quirky styles ranging from polka and commercial country to cartoon music. I think that's fair. I love that I think, paragraph. I think, I think it, you know, in, in spite of that, I, I wouldn't say that there's no, like, sex appeal to what we're doing, but I don't think it's, I don't think like we're merchants of that. So that might be the, really the, a finer distinction. But, uh, you know, nerd culture has really come into full bloom over the course of our career. And at this point, I feel like uh, it actually might, it might have a little bit more um, cultural currency than, than uh, just some old Elvis tropes. But was it something that you and John sat down and ever talked about what your style was going to be, what you were going to stand for? Was it something that you... I think it was very important that we be original. And there's a lot of different ways to be original. And being original in music is a very curious balancing act because all music is referencing other music. It's not like... I mean, we, we, we're not experimental musicians. We're working with chords and verses and writing songs. And in many ways, writing songs is a super square enterprise. You know, you're... The second you start writing a song, you have more in common with Cole Porter than you would have ever imagined. You know, you're thinking about things that he thought about. In what way? What, well, what do you mean by that? You know, you're, you're working with verse. You're working with harmonic structure. You know, songwriting is a craft. You know, it's, it's not, in some ways, it's not that different than, um, you know, making a shoe. Like, there are things about it that actually do really work if you do it the right way. Like what? Well, I mean, it's, it's hard to sum up. There are a lot of sort of secret things you learn about setting up songs in the same way that like a good piece of graphic design might have a grid to it. You're, nobody ever says like, oh, I love the way they worked that grid out. You just see the harmony of the grid in action when you're looking at it. Well, other designers might <clears throat> say that and certain works might have a particularly strong grid or some might not have any and that might right. be a real breakthrough. But what would be one secret in terms of how you approach a song or put a song together? Well, I think a certain amount of shock value has always worked for us. You know, having like an arresting opening line is often the key sort of gimmick that will fuel the rest of a song. But uh, 
there are a lot of textures that I think we find compelling that might be considered corny or pastiche. I think in a way, if you're confident that what you're doing is, is actually 51% original, you can actually get bolder about what the other 49% is. You know, for very early on, we made a lot of kind of arrangement references to kinds of instrumentation that you might only hear in children's music. And that's kind of weird. There's no percentage in, you know, nobody goes, oh, man, I heard this great album. It sort of sounds like children's music. But it's just sort of uncharted territory, and it felt interesting to us. I've had lots of conversations with John as we listen to Muzak or listen to easy listening piped in music in a restaurant, like in a diner, and uh, bringing in music from television themes, music from incidental music, music from other places besides official pop music was something that we always were kind of obsessed with. And it's a, you know, it's a different musical era now because I grew up in a time when people knew the top 40, whether you wanted to or not. You know, popular music was such a, a big cultural force in, in our childhood, you know, um, that uh, it was something worth getting away from. To shun the overt part of rock culture seemed like a much bolder move at the time. Oh, yes. Well, it was definitely, there was something about when, when the Might Be Giants first came out, you took the sort of thinking man's band a step further than the talking heads. And you did it in a way that felt and still feels approachable. Mm-hmm. That, that it was somehow, I think it became, and, and still is for many people, almost like a soundtrack to living. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, and in a way that was very accessible and also entertaining. There was, there was a way that you could understand your own life through your lives. The accessible part of it was something that we've never really had to work at that much. I remember the very first time we did our first show, our first full-blown show, I was very surprised at how easy it was for people in the audience to not just enjoy it, but actually like kind of freely laugh at what we were doing in that kind of conspiratorial, like, we're with you kind of way. That was not something that we were anticipating. I think we were imagining that we would go over the same way like a band like Perubu or some other kind of more experimental band would go over. So how do you keep... The quality high. How do you keep? How do you, you? You've you've had a thirty year career that seems to be producing work that just gets better and better. And there aren't that many acts that you can say that about. By after thirty years, they're doing the tours and singing the same songs that they did thirty years ago, and nothing that they've done in the last year. Whereas you yeah. could do join. You could you could do a show about join us, and it would be fabulous. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I think that's. It's been a bit of an endurance test. It's also felt like a real manic episode. I mean, I don't feel like, you know, we've never done the rehab thing. We've never broken up. We've never wiped out. And part of it might be because we actually started it as we were young adults. Like, we weren't teenagers. So our identities weren't as caught up in what we were doing. I mean, considering it's taken over my entire life, it still feels like a project. It doesn't feel like I am the guy in the band you know, and and so I just I think from just an ego point of view, we have a healthier distance from it than a lot of other people. Do you find it harder or easier writing for kids now that you're writing for both kids and adults and the kids that have now become adults? There was a moment like five years ago where we were doing back to back kids and adults things. And it was a bit of a crazy maker because 
is everything you do that sounds kind of bouncy? Do you go like, oh, is that should that be a kid song? Maybe sounds kind of like kid song, but that's not necessarily the the smartest way to do it. All the stuff we've done for kids has been on deadlines, and that's just a different way of working. And if it wasn't for doing incidental music and advertising stuff, I don't think we'd even know how to approach working on deadlines. But we can do stuff on deadline. Does it change the quality? Um, we have enough time to have it be of really high quality. I mean, I'm really proud of the children's records we've done. And um, there's also a, this other visual layer to all the kids' stuff, which is that we make these DVDs that you know drag in a ton of creative people. And that is kind of a an extra bonus layer of fun that we know is going to happen. So every time we're writing a song, we're very aware of all the whatever nouns we're pulling into the song are going to be fully realized in an animation. So that's, that kind of has its own added excitement to it. But they're just, they're just kind of different projects. It's a different kind of project. So it's been 30 years. Yes. You've been raising the bar. You have no intention of stopping. Um, what do you want to do next? I would like to figure out how to make an iPhone app that I can afford. But you've always been a little bit ahead of the curve with technology as well. Weren't, didn't you sell yeah. the first album on MP3 digital yeah. release? Yeah, we did. We were approached by eMusic very early on in the dot-com moment. I didn't even moment. know eMusic was around when you did that. Oh, they were around and they had crazy money. Did that, they? Yeah, it was delicious. But uh, the, uh, I think for us, we started with this thing called Dial-A-Song, which was a phone machine. Um, that played a song. You just called this number. Uh, this I called phone it number. today. Oh, really? And it's, what did you get? A message I, machine? I got um, four or five rings. So uh-huh. I was getting hopeful that there was going it's to be something. Four us. or five rings. And then it went to an, one of those automatic answering machines mm-hmm. that somebody hadn't actually filled out. So it said, you have reached. <laughs> no, there was a blank. And then it said, this answering machine is all filled up. You cannot right. leave a message. Right. It's true. <laughs> you can't leave a message. No, I actually, I left my, my workspace that had the phone number in it, and I didn't transfer the number. We stopped Dial Song a while ago, but basically for people who don't know what Dial Song is, it was basically, it's exactly what it sounds like, uh, but it was at the, we started doing it at the very beginning of the phone machine craze. Yes. And it's hard to even think of there being a phone machine craze, but in 1983, there were not a lot of phone machines in the world. It's a very New York City idea. You know, it was just, it was a a whole different way for us to express ourselves. And it reached a completely different kind of audience than just playing in rock clubs. And that was interesting to us. But the nicest sort of side effect of the whole thing is that it kind of redefined who we were as a band. Because most of the ways that bands are presented to the world is are very kind of cookie cutter. It's like, you know, this is the hot new band. They've got a lot of style. They've got one really good song that you should definitely check out. And that's kind of the way bands enter the world. Even the most interesting bands, the most imaginative bands that will last forever. You know, it's like, there's this guy back. He's got the song Loser. This is Ben Radiohead. He's got the song Creep. You know, it's like, that is just the way, you know, like we were, they might be trying to got the song Dylan. Let's start. You know, that's the way bands are presented. What was nice about Dial Song is it was such a strange kind of gambit, you know. I mean, speaking of, you know, branding and marketing and stuff like that, people think of it as really our way of, like, sticking the, our little flag on the ground and saying, like, we are here. But for us, it just was such an interesting creative spacewalk, you know, to have to write songs that would work on the phone was weird, you know, because phone lines are not full frequency. You know, what's going to be an interesting song to hear 
crying out of a speaker. You know, it's a, you know that's a very different squished together. challenge. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, the way people experienced the band, it, it made us seem like a much more performance-based you know, that what we were doing was, by its nature, an experiment. Well, also in that time of the 80s, it really was the sort of big moment for performance art in New York City it was, at Oh, it certainly time. was. It certainly was, yes. Um, I mean, that was the clubs that we started in had very, very different kinds of programming than like a regular rock club. So we are exactly the same age. And so at that time, I would call and listen to the music. And sometimes we'd put the phone in the office that I was working in on speaker so everybody could hear it. But there was always a small part of me, and I don't know how many other young girls felt this way. There was always a small part of me that hoped that one of you would answer. There were times when I, when, you know, if the guy from Con Ed had to come over that I did answer. <laughs> um, but uh, it took off very quickly and it kind of became its own thing. And soon we had to not take messages at all. So you just get the weird auto hang-up thing. Yeah. But uh, it, was a, it was great. It was great while it lasted. Well, I'm really glad that the band has lasted as long as it has and will continue in the future. Thank Excellent. you so much for being oh, a designer, John. My pleasure. To learn more about John Plansberg, visit theymightbegiants.com. And if you really have a hunger for knowledge, which you should, head on over to This Might Be a Wiki. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Randy Ortica and research by Jeff Close and Lisa Grant. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store.